and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, you should come on by uh, the Dispatch and sign up for all our free stuff, including our exciting new newsletter, Capitalism, by um, friend of this podcast, uh, Scott Lincecum. And uh, he, we're very excited that he's going to join our team. Uh, to do a newsletter on all things having to do with trade, globalism, and uh, economics, and probably nachos, and the perfidy of Blue Jays, and various other things. Um, you know, he is our resident go-to neoliberal shill, and we're really excited to have him on board. Um, today's episode is brought to you, is sponsored by uh, Hydrant. And Ancestry.com. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so I'm actually home for less than a week. Uh, when I was here, the last time I was I recorded the solo thing was last Friday in Chicago. Although, frankly, I can't remember if I did another solo thing since then. Um, Space-time continuum is kind of a Mobius strip for me these days. Uh, but um, I screwed up just said something dumb about how, you know, Martin Van Buren was president during the era of good feelings. And he wasn't, he was, uh, president well after that. Um, and I believe he was elected in 1832. Uh, James Monroe was the president during the era of good feelings. And, um, I'm not gonna go too deep into all of this though. I actually find that whole period kind of fascinating and I, I need to find a good book on, on, on all of it. Um, but what Van Buren did was really study the example of Monroe. What Monroe wanted to do during the era of good feelings was get rid of parties. He was part of the sort of the George Washington school of um, thought that said that parties were bad, that, you know, that's why the Constitution didn't mention them. Um, and he thought that he could unite the country by um, appointing people um, from both the sort of essentially, I think the defunct, this is all from memory, Federalist Party, but I'm, um, and regardless, it was basically the Federalist Party, I think it was the Federalist Party, again, I'm sure someone will correct me on that, um, basically died, um, or was, or its, its demise was hastened by Monroe, and he tried to run a one-party government, and he discovered um, very reluctantly that basically, the lack of coherent party discipline within the government where everybody was ostensibly on one team, at least among the political appointees, focused on re-election, focused on opposing a defined opposition party. Without that, uh, conflicts still emerged, but they became more about interpersonal rivalries, personal agendas, and whatnot. And um, he basically what what van buren recognized was that the madisonian point about parties uh providing cohere ideological and philosophical and political coherence um to two large factions contending over important policies was actually really really important anyway i screwed it up i mean i'm i'm kind of you know there's there's a sort of a humble brag inherent in this that you know one of my first major intellectual factual screw-ups on this podcast, I and mean, I'm sure I've had others, I know I've had others, but it's the first one in a while, um, had to do with me screwing up who was president during the era of good feelings. Um, I kind of suspect, not to cast dispersions, but uh, my suspicion is that the, the caliber of mistakes made on, say, Dan Bongino's podcast are probably of a slightly lower order and less um highfalutin um anyway um i don't want to belabor the party stuff because we talked about that a bunch last time and my larger point still stands um you know i don't love partisanship but i like strong parties and i think they're important and i think one of the reasons why things are so ugly now is precisely because the parties are so weak 
that they don't defend their long-term interests as a party, and instead they just basically arouse passion um, from people who internalize their partisanship more um, rather than it being institutionally defined and protected the way it, is, the way it was for most of our history um, through things like platform writing and party conventions and, and all of that. Um, and I think one of the reasons why the media is so crappy is because the parties are so weak that they take it upon themselves to do party work, um, rather than, uh, stay back a bit and call BS, um, on politicians from both parties, which they, they tend not to do. Instead, you have some outlets that are constantly truth squatting, um, one party, um, but you've heard all of that stuff from me before, and I, I don't know, I don't really need to go into it. Um, it does touch on slightly, I guess, the thing I wrote the G file about today, and I'm not going to summarize it all here in part because I'm not sure it's that good a G file. Um, sometimes you just don't feel it doesn't, it doesn't really just come to you well. And I'm often very hard on myself about that, but that's what it is. Um, you know, the, the ridiculousness of the way the press has covered um, when I say the press for these purposes, um, I'm talking about, you know, the MSM, but, but primarily though, not exclusively, you know, uh, cable news outlets like CNN and MSNBC, um, you know, you get like what we had last week, you know, the fiery, but mostly peaceful, peaceful protests, um, which is, as I say in the G file might actually supplant uh, fake but accurate as one of the best examples in modern history of the press being so obviously ideologically reluctant to actually concede reality on the ground because it's politically inconvenient. Um, you know, if you find yourself in front of a burning building saying that the protests, sure, they're fiery, but they're mostly peaceful. Um, you, you need to go back and rethink, you know, what you're, what, what you're in the business for. Hold on, let me get a beer. So, um, and what set me off about it today was that there was a Washington Post story about this big new study from some, I'm sure there are good people there, but some, you know, it sounds like some pretty peacenik outfit that is, uh, found after careful study of all the protests and demonstrations since George Floyd's killing that they were 93% nonviolent or 93% peaceful. And this is just sort of the data version of fiery, but mostly peaceful. Um, you're just really, you know, you're, you're carrying water for an ideological agenda when you find yourself making these arguments as an exoneration of the protest movement or as an indictment of people who are complaining about rioting and, and violence in almost no other sphere of life, um, per, particularly no other sphere of sort of political policy life is a 93% non lethal, nonviolent, non-dangerous, uh, score acceptable. If, you know, if you try to get FDA approval of a drug that was only 90, that was, was 93% uh, non-lethal or even 93% that was effective for 93% of the public, but 70% of the public would get really ill or, or die or whatever. You'd be laughed out of the, you know, out of the hearing room. Um, I did some quick math and, you know, World War II was, you know, there were 16 million Americans in uniform during World War II, um, which, and, but there were only about a million who fought in combat, which boils down to, I believe, a 6.25% um, combat rate, which, which means that World War II, at least when as far as Americans were concerned, was 93.25% peaceful. Um, you see the point. I mean, it's just this is sort of ridiculous way of talking about things. Now the, the report makes some other points that I think are valid. And David French has made this point that it is, it is entirely possible that at least in some circumstances, the use of 
police or military and a or national guard force, you know, um, cause peaceful demonstrations to escalate into violence. And I think as a prudential matter, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to worry about. Uh, you know, police take that kind of thing. Military takes that kind of thing into account all of the time. They, you know, a policeman, as I, I sort of use as an illustration in the G file, a, a, a policeman can be outside some biker bar or whatever, and there could be reports of a disturbance in there or a holdup or a fight or a rape or whatever. And if he doesn't have backup or she doesn't have backup, as a prudential matter, sh the, police, the, the police officer shouldn't go in if they don't think they can get control of the situation. They should wait outside and wait for backup. If the police officer makes the mistake, the procedural mistake of going in alone and then gets beaten up or has his or her gun taken away from him, um, they might be wrong in terms of the procedure and they're, they're a cantankerous police you know, uh, commander or whatever can ream them out and put a demerit in their file or whatever. But they're not morally wrong, right? They're not, they're not, they haven't done something that is objectively wrong in a ethical sense or in a moral sense, uh, what they did was wrong procedurally. And so while I don't want, I don't want police to make things worse when they try to disperse or dispel crowds or anything like that. Um, the implication that you hear from a lot of people that, um, it's sort of, you know, it's two to tango and there's a moral equivalence and there wouldn't have been violence if police didn't try to clear protesters off the street. Um, it's just nonsense. I mean, if, if the if the police are right and have the law on their side and people resist and resort to violence, um, however mistaken the procedure might have been by the police, the they have, you know, as Max Weber would put it, the state has a, a monopoly on violence. And if the state's wrong, that's a different thing. And then you can get into the asininity of people calling these things insurrections and rebellions and whatnot. But at the end of the day, the, 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 the blame still belongs to the, the people who are breaking the law, not the people who are enforcing the law. So anyway, I, I got into a little of that. And then I got into this you know, point that I wrote about in my column. I was also in the G file today about how we're basically stuck in this really annoying place where the entire public argument is about two competing narratives that um, they're not complete lies. You know, Antifa exists, white right-wing extremists exist. Um, Donald Trump has done bad things. Joe Biden has missed a step. All of these, you know, Democrats have made mistakes. Republicans have made mistakes. All, all of the, you know, there are, there's truth behind all of those things, but the narratives are these wild exaggerations of all of, of, of all these things where the convenient facts are strung together and distorted and amplified to tell a story that is just not plausible really on either side. Um, you know, to listen to a lot of the democratic partisans and look, I, I take a backseat to, well, I don't take a backseat to no one. I take a backseat to very few reasonable people when it comes to uh, criticizing Donald Trump, but you know the the old Trump is Hitler stuff and that he's a fascist fascist dictator stuff and all of that that goes just that stuff tends to go way too far. The idea that the Republican Party is is racist root and branch and all of these things, I can criticize a lot of the racial rhetoric from some Republicans and some of the decisions by even more Republicans. But, you know, the Republican Party is not the party of white supremacy um, any more than this country is a fundamentally racist country or any of that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, the narratives about, you know, Biden and these guys are, and the Democrats are kind of dumb. You know, um, and, you know, Antifa, Black Lives Matter and AOC do not run the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden is not a pawn of Antifa or um, or Black Lives Matter. He's not a radical. He's also, as you know, I mean, Donald Trump says he doesn't know he's alive, which is a good example of what I mean about an exaggeration. Yeah, Joe Biden's weird, 
And he was weird before he, he could be accused of senility. You know, I mean, I've been joking. It's my standard joke that you never know when Joe Biden could start shouting, get these squirrels off of me. Um, but he knows he's alive. He's not a drooling, you know, uh, uh, mental patient. Um, I don't know what the, 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 you know, I know that we're not supposed to use the word retarded anymore, and I'm fine with that. But does anybody know what the politically acceptable, politically correct or socially acceptable term is for that kind of thing? Because that's what they're accusing Biden of being. And it's just not true. And I also think it's just dumb politics for the Trump people to do it that way. Because when you set the bar that low, it's so easy for him to clear it. You know, you say he's hiding in his basement. So he just comes out of his basement and he gives a speech and then you look kind of silly talking about hiding Biden. Um, you say that he doesn't know he's alive and that he's, you know, he's, he's, um, um, basically a mental patient. And then he strings some sentences together or gives a convention speech that holds together and he's exceeded expectations. The real test will come in the debates, but I just think it's bad. It's, it's a sign of bad messaging, but regardless, both parties are sort of, and not really the parties because the parties are so weak and dumb, you know, the, the weird coalitions that dominate opinion shows on cable news and get the most hits and traffic on Facebook and, um, the people who are, uh, you know, who think that, you know, both on the left and the right, the people who think that the, you know, the, the rioters and the BLM people are the authentic voice of the left. Um, these are all, these are all wild exaggerations and narratives that are being crammed down our throats. And I just think neither of them are true. They have truths to them, but they're all just these wild exaggerations. And, you know, I mean, I, I, maybe the best example of this, which is something I've talked about a bunch, is, you know, most people I know, including most of my, you know, I would think about it, I was thinking about it the other day, most of my friends who are conservative, which is most of my friends, um, they're probably going to vote for Trump. None of them believe the stuff that they hear about Donald Trump being a genius and or being a super patriot um uh you know or four-dimensional chess player or any of that kind of stuff or even that none of them actually even really believe as far as i can tell that he's a particularly good person they may not think he's as bad a person as i do but they're all you know they're all realistic people and um uh but they think he's a better choice given the givens than voting for joe biden and uh, you know and I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. I, I, I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump either. But I get the argument. I mean, uh, I, if I, you know, if 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 I cared about my vote or if my vote mattered more, I would agonize about it more. But voting for, you know, voting to put Democrats in office, reasonable people, reasonable conservatives can have a problem with that. My point is, is that that's the basic attitude of almost every Republican. Um, or even every Trump supporter I talk to, you know, and I talk to a bunch of like normal American Trump supporters um, in my travels around the country and including with relatives and some were, you know, definitely more pro-Trump um, than others, but everybody was willing to acknowledge at least to some degree Trump's flaws. The thing is, is that there's this stranglehold on the sort of uh, commanding heights of conservative commentary out there, but you're just not allowed to say it. Um, you have to say the, and, and part of it is this weird obsession that afflicts not only Trump's kids, but also an enormous number of, uh, media right-wing media personalities that they're terrified that Trump is going to hear them. And so, or they're hopeful that Trump is going to hear them either way. And so they feel the need to lavish him with praise. And I have a sneaking suspicion that even the, 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 the hordes of, to use a term from social science, assholes on Twitter who denounce and insult and ridicule, um, sometimes really cruelly, anybody who criticizes Trump, I suspect that if you actually had a beer with them, they would acknowledge 
a lot of his shortcomings. They just don't think you should lend aid and comfort to the enemy by saying it out loud. And so you get this weird disconnect where in public, you have to sing the praises of the dear leader in the most exaggerated and ridiculous form, even though most people don't actually believe that crap on the right, as far as I can tell. I, I know some do, um, and I think they're just wrong and, and, and frankly weird for believing it. Um, doesn't make them necessarily bad people or anything like that. Um, you just get this sort of exaggerated thing and you get the exact opposite, you know, the, the mirror image of this in the, in the mainstream media where you can't give a partial defense of Donald Trump on MSNBC. It has to be that he's going to eat your children and, um, you know, and throw puppies in blenders and all of the rest. And I think, you know, and frankly, I think this kind of dis is not in Donald Trump's interest. And if he wasn't such a narcissist, he would understand that the voters he needs to be able to win are the ones who um, want to acknowledge his shortcomings, but are just voting for him as the lesser evil. The one interesting outlet that is really sort of focusing on that happens to be the Wall Street Journal, which has been running a few pieces lately, basically along the lines of what I'm talking about, which is, yeah, he's not great. Yeah, he makes mistakes. Yeah, he's crude and coarse and yada, yada, yada. Um, but, uh, he's better than the Democrats. And, uh, I think the Trump campaign would be well served if they would listen to some people at the wall street journal. I mean, I, I disagree with a lot of the arguments that have been in the journal, but that's just a more intellectually defensible position. My point is, is you're not allowed to make a lot of intellectually defensible positions and uh, arguments in public. You have to make these cartoon arguments in public, which just makes me just really, really exhausted with all of this stuff. And, you know, one of the best ways to keep from being exhausted is to stay hydrated. And that's why I want to talk to you about hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, ah, zinc, that help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a pack for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO. D-I-N-G-O for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO. Speaking of dingoes, um, I don't know if people saw, but there's a really interesting story, a really uh, gratifying story about how for the first time in years or even decades, they've spotted um, the New Guinea singing dog in the wild. There are only like 300 of them in shelters in captivity around the world, and they didn't think there were any left in the wild. And then it turns out that there, um, there are some, and apparently they crossed over from the Indonesian side. Um, and if you haven't had a chance, go check out some of the stories about it. First of all, they look like Zoe, the dingo. Um, uh, they, you know, from a distance, it just looks like this, at least the one I think it was in the Smithsonian article or maybe the New York Times, it just looks like Zoe standing on a rock. And um, but the cool thing about them is that they're one of the oldest, if not the oldest dog species subspecies. It's not you can't really call it a breed technically um, because they're not bred. Um, but it's one of the oldest lineages of dogs in the world, and they have these really cool vocalizations that. Um, uh, 
get really kind of almost scary when they do them in large groups. And it's funny, the other day I was listening to some of that on a, like a YouTube video because I'm doing a lot of reading about dogs these days. And, um, and Zoe did not like it. And one got the sense that Zoe, for listeners who don't know, Zoe is a Carolina dog, which some people call the American dingo. Um, my understanding is that the real dingo experts from Australia do not put a lot of stake in the American dingo as a real thing, as a real dingo like thing, but whatever. Um, Zoe definitely looks like a dingo. She's got all sorts of dingo habits. Um, but Zoe did not like the, 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 the singing from the, uh, singing dogs. And, um, and I got into this whole weird conversation with her as I sometimes do about how, you know, was there some ancient rivalry between you and, and this tribe? Was this like the, 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 the great ancient hatred between, you know, I don't know, Neanderthals and homo sapiens or something that, you know, did your mom refer to them as the yodeling trash from New Guinea or something, but she really didn't like it. Anyway, um, I just found that stuff pretty fascinating. Um, so yesterday we recorded a podcast that won't air until Tuesday with an old friend of mine, Ian Murray, who's got a new book out called the socialist temptation. And I don't want to, um, siphon off enthusiasm, uh, for our listeners to tune into that. Cause I think a lot of people will enjoy it, but it's gotten, you know, the conversation was interesting and I've written a lot about this stuff over the years. I had a big piece in commentary about socialism two years ago. That was sort of a follow on to a piece I did about socialism 10 years earlier or eight years earlier, uh, during the beginning of the Obama administration and something that we didn't talk about, you know, it's funny. And this was sort of the point of the earlier piece I did during the Obama years was that in the, in the two thousands in the early days of the Obama administration, you had, um, you had a whole bunch of left-wingers who were really excited and were actually openly talking about socialism. And I think the Newsweek had a cover saying we're all socialists now. Um, Matt Iglesias had something about socialism. There were a bunch of people who were talking about how Obama and the stimulus and Obamacare and all these various things had brought socialism back into the mainstream of American politics. And as often happens, the second Republicans started using the word socialist to describe Democrats, it was immediately denounced as McCarthyite insane, um, uh, sometimes even racist because it was part of this larger effort to otherize Barack Obama by calling him a socialist and all these kinds of things. And it's really kind of amazing how in 10 years or however many years it's been, um, socialism is now something that an enormous number of, you know, I don't know, can we call them liberals? If you call you in my book, if you call yourself a liberal, you can't also call yourself a socialist. Um, but you know, there are different kinds of definitions of liberalism and for some, they don't see a contradiction. I mean, what, what, what was his name? Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Or maybe it was Arthur Schlesinger Sr. I can't remember right now, but one of them wrote about how it must've been senior wrote about how, um, the great thing about the new deal was that it was a replicable thing and that through, I think the quote was through a series of new deals, um, the left could finally implement socialism in America. Regardless, you know, partly it's the influence of Bernie Sanders, which I always thought got this artificial boost because Hillary Clinton was so terrible. Um, but you now have, you know, not, not mainstream Democrats to be sure, but a lot of Democrats and even more sort of activist types who are perfectly happy to talk about socialism and, you know, ever since, um, what's her name? Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Is she still around? Um, and if she is, has she finally like washed the, the conditioner out of her hair? She always looked like, um, she forgot to like rinse, um, with that hair of hers. But anyway, you know, there was that great time where in, I think it was in 2016 where, or 2015 where, 
because they were so afraid of alienating Bernie Sanders voters that she was asked repeatedly on different outlets, including by Chris Matthews, who has just become an unperson, it seems, um, was asked, what's the difference between a socialist and a liberal? And either she couldn't or wouldn't answer it. And which was a real sign to me and to, to other people that, you know, Democrats um, may not consider themselves socialists, but they're absolutely terrified of antagonizing people who do call themselves socialists. And just the fact that, you know, and maybe it's just because everything's so noisy now, it's difficult to um, do otherwise, but it's really kind of interesting how, you know, very few Republicans get um, any grief, even from the mainstream media anymore, for saying the Democrats are socialists and believe in socialism and all that, um, which I think might at least in part be a function of the fact, not that necessarily all these reporters and news anchors are socialists, but they're also scared of being contradicted by the Bernie Sanders crowd, which is very online and, and yells at them all the time. Uh, they don't want to get caught in the thing where they say the Democrats aren't socialists. And then they come out and say, well, as a matter of fact, we are socialists. It was sort of like during the initial days of the George Floyd protests when, uh, and I wrote about this at some point, um, all these MSNBC and CNN hosts would, I remember Stephanie Rule in particular, but there were a bunch of people who did it, who were terrified that this abolish the police or defund the police thing would be taken literally by people because they thought it'd be bad for Biden. And they were like, look, you know, it is just not true. It is a myth that these people want to get rid of the police altogether. That's not what defund the police means. Um, it means reform the police. It means allocate more funding to other things, but also to have police do the things that they're supposed to do, yada, 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 yada. And, and then, you know, time and again, these experts on this stuff, these sort of BLM adjacent academics would come on and say, no, no, actually, we mean defund the police. We mean abolish the police. There was even, um, I think it was a New York Times op-ed page, uh, there's a New York Times op-ed essay that had, I think the, the, t the title of it was, uh, no, we actually really mean it. We mean abolish the police or something along those lines. And um, anyway, I think that, you know, the, the, a lot of sort of mainstream liberal uh, reporters and anchors live in terror of uh, the sort of the Sanders Nistas coming after them. And so they're always super cautious about these things. And maybe that's one of the reasons why um, they don't ridicule Republicans for throwing around the socialist label. Um, anyway, so. Uh, I talked to Ian about this for a while. Um, uh, he knows his stuff. It's a good book. It's a good sort of intro to socialism. Um, but one of the points we kind of disagreed on, I would say disagreed, but where we had a, a discussion about, um, was this has been a long time beef of mine is that there is this tendency among conservatives to think that socialism is purely an economic doctrine. And it's understandable because particularly older conservatives, you know, they were raised reading about Marxism and Marx, you know, fashioned himself an economist. He said economics was everything, material, you know, materialism is everything. Economics was a quote unquote science and, and socialism and communism and Marxism were scientific, you know, endeavors and all of these kinds of things. And, um, and the appeal of socialism for a very long time in the West, um, and by socialism, I mean the broad sweep of things that we would call socialists to include everything from social democracy to outright communism, the appeal of these things was primarily an economic one, and they were framed in economic terms. And, and so it's understandable that there is this lagging understanding of socialism as a purely economic pitch. But the fact is it's not, it didn't, you know, the first real socialist, at least according to people who keep track of these things was this guy, Francois Babeuf, who was part of the conspiracy of equals. Um, and one of, uh, during the French revolution and a revolutionary times. And, um, 
you know, economics was part of it. Getting rid of private property was obviously part of it. That goes back to, you know, Rousseau, who was the great inspiration for the French revolutionaries, all the stuff about getting rid of private property and communal ownership. But, but even then, it wasn't necessarily an economic argument. It was about a different way of living. It was a different um, understanding of how society is supposed to work that had economic consequences, but it wasn't sold as an economic argument. The economics was downstream of all of that. And um, even, even you know, Marxism's real appeal uh, wasn't about economics, um, at least not for very long after he died. I mean, I wrote about this in my first book quite a bit. You know, George Sorrell, um, who was in many ways the ideological guru for both um, Leninism and Italian fascism, he recognized really early on that as, as strict sort of social science, public policy, economic theory, whatever, however you want to call it, um, Marxism was sort of hot garbage. It just didn't make sense. It was a bad theory of history. It was a bad theory of economics. Um, I think um, uh, Jerry Muller, um, who's written some wonderful books, uh, I think he's made this point somewhere, though I tried to find it when I was working on uh, Suicide of the West and I couldn't nail it down. Um, but I think he says somewhere, maybe it's one of his lectures that I listened to, that in all the tens of thousands of pages that um, Karl Marx wrote about the inevitability of communism, the inevitability of the dialectic and the inexorable forces of history and all of this stuff, um, the, the, the number of pages that he actually commits on paper to explaining how communism would work as an economic system is like, a half dozen or a dozen. I mean, he just really wasn't concerned with it. And so anyway, Sorel recognized this. And what Sorel did is he, he switched the, the pitch for Marxism from a scientific one to a religious one. He referred to, I think, Das Kapital as the, this apocalyptic text. And, um, and what he was, ended up selling was this, I don't want to get um, David Bonson mad at me, um, but this sort of millenarian um, uh, messianic uh, pitch for communism as the end of history that we're all struggling and striving towards reaching. And they started selling Marxism as a, re as, as a fundamentally religious doctrine very early on, it worked like what Eric Vigellin would call a political religion. It had all its priests and its sacred texts and all of these things. But it was a pitch of religion, um, or it was a pitch that was fundamentally religious in nature. And, um, and I don't think it's, at this point, I don't think that's a particularly controversial point to make about the social psychology of, you know, Marxists or Bolsheviks um, from say 1917 to, you know, 1945, or I should say maybe 1939. Um, so anyway, um, where was I? Oh, so the, the point about it not being strictly an economic thing, I think is hugely important. The appeal, and this is what I got into in the second commentary essay, the appeal of socialism for the vast majority of people who like socialism, think they like socialism, want to like socialism, claim to be socialists, has very little to do with Marx. Um, I'm so tired of, I mean, look, fine, make these arguments about how BLM has Marxist roots. If by Marxist you simply mean radical left-wing roots, fine. But the number of people who actually take Marxist theory really seriously is probably in the low hundreds in the entire United States of America. Um, but if you mean Marxism is sort of, you know, this or like cultural Marxism or, or radical antipathy towards liberal democratic capitalism, yeah, then there are a lot of Marxists out there. But it's a sign of the degradation of what the word means. 
But anyway, most of the people who care about socialism, want socialism, claim to be socialists, um, first of all, they haven't read any Marx. And if they did, they read it a long time ago and probably didn't understand it. Um, the, they're, they're not taking their intellectual cues from sort of Marxist doctrine or Marxist arguments. Um, they're basically people who just don't like capitalism. And they don't have a grand theoretical understanding of capitalism either. They haven't read Adam Smith or, you know, um, or even Thomas Sowell or, or Henry Hazlitt or any of these people. What they think, how they define capitalism is America today. They think America today is capitalist. They don't like the way things are going now. They don't think the system is working for them. And so they think the status quo is capitalist. And they've been taught sort of like if you don't, it's like being told that you have to like comic books. And so if you like comic books, you have to choose Marvel or DC. And if you like DC, you can't like Marvel and vice versa. And so these people have been told, you know, that the opposite of what we have right now is socialism. And so they're for it. And I think that explains a huge amount of, of the polling that we see about the popularity of socialism. Ramesh has made this point a few times is that basically whenever socialism becomes more popular, it's because capitalism goes into bad odor and it's just like a seesaw. You put more weight at one end, the other end goes up. You put more weight at the other end, the other end goes up. Um, and has very little to do with like serious ideological commitment. And, but moreover, what people don't like about capitalism right now isn't primarily economic. I mean, for some people it obviously is, but it has more to do with like their indictment of our society, of the life that they're living, their feelings of alienation, their feelings of inadequacy, their social social status, class anxiety stuff it is, you know, there's a huge amount of, of Nisbetian quest for community stuff wrapped up. And this is one of the points that, that, that Ian makes is that there's this, you know, that there's a communitarian appeal to socialism that says, Oh, we don't have to organize our, our lives around our jobs and the rat race and our careers. And we don't have to drown ourselves in debt to get a degree to get on the bottom rung of the corporate ladder. Instead, you know, as Nancy Pelosi put it when they were trying to pass Obamacare, um, we can we can stop being job locked and people can quit their jobs and become poets. You know, that's that's a big part of the appeal of socialism for a lot of people is just this feeling that, you know, uh, Koyana Scotsy, right? That was that movie, that cool, weird documentary thing. Life's out of balance. And they think that, socialism will give them more meaning, which is as fate would have it. And I talk about this with Ian, a very similar part of the appeal for nationalism. Um, nationalism is this other thing that speaks to this romantic desire among us to be part of the group, to be, to have to draw meaning from a group. It is also a big part of identity politics. It is why I list all of those different isms in the subtitle Suicide of the West, because when liberal democratic capitalism no longer captures the imagination and the passion and the commitments of people, they retreat into different forms of tribalism. And you can call it whatever you like. Just tribalism, I think, is a good catch-all. These different forms of social organization that they think will give their lives more meaning. And this has always been the Achilles heel of cap liberal democratic capitalism is that it is really good at a bunch of things that everyone claims to care about, like making poor people less poor, the, um, improving, um, the material circumstances that we all live under, um, making it possible to do more and ambitious things because of the wealth that it throws off. People care about all, doing all of those things. But you don't derive meaning directly from liberal democratic capitalism because that's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to, you know, expand, you know, it's not, it's not morally neutral because I actually imbue liberty and individual sovereignty and agency with a lot of moral importance. But those things 
as more as important as I think those things are, this is sort of a Tucker Carlson argument about how you know capitalism is just a tool or the market is just a tool. I disagree with that profoundly, but I don't disagree. I don't disagree with the argument that it's a tool. I disagree with the argument that it's just a tool. Um, but to the extent that liberal democratic capitalism is a tool, it's a tool that empowers you to do the other things that give you meaning to find that nook and cranny in modern life, whether it's in your family or in your faith or your community or in your hobbies or whatever, that fits your own personal definition of the pursuit of happiness. The right to pursue happiness is individual, but for most people, because we are social creatures, the way you fulfill it is with other people. And what liberal democratic capitalism lets you do is to find those people. And what people don't like about liberal democratic capitalism is they don't like the idea that you have to look that hard. They want you to find it right out your window. And that's why they emphasize things like nationalism and all that, and, or, or socialism. They want you to find meaning when you get out of the bed in the morning rather than having to work to find it. And, um, and that's why I think the solution to all that is, is a robust rebuilding of local institutions, local communities, because that's where you find me your meaning in life is where you live, not in some abstract, you know, team that only exists to own the libs or tout one race's superiority over another. That stuff is, is, is spiritually, nutritionally deficient. Um, and the only place that you really fill up the holes in your soul, and we all have them, is with the people who love you love and the people who love you. And, um, and so that's the thing I think that a lot of people on the right don't understand about socialism. By all means, let's have an argument about how getting rid of markets is incandescently stupid and that planners and bureaucrats cannot outthink the market or perform better than the market. I am entirely, I love those arguments had those arguments all my life, willing to have them for the rest of my life. But if you actually want to deal with the people on their own terms who are attracted to socialism or to nationalism, you have to deal with this more poetic stuff. You have to deal with the deficiencies that they feel in their lives that may have economic aspects but are not, directly speaking, economic. And that is something that... Um, I think people on the right really struggle with. And one of Ian's great points is, is that one of the things that socialists have gotten very good at is selling socialism as being consistent with American values of egalitarianism, of community, of fairness, and all of these kinds of things. And um, we need to get a lot better about rebutting those claims about socialism, but on those terms about fairness, egalitarianism, community, and all of that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, this is, this is an eternal fight, right? And I say this all the time. You've heard me say it all the time. Um, these problems are built into human nature. Um, because every time somebody is born, the clock starts at zero in terms of the programming that we have, and we've got to fix the programming. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm sort of fascinated by how human nature worked in the past and in the present. I wrote about this in a column today or yesterday, uh, today, whatever, my latest syndicated column about this idiotic woman, or at least this idiotic argument made by this woman about in defense of looting. And, you know, the argument I make is that what she's really doing is she is gussing up with all the latest you know, cis heteronormative language, um, uh, in, in, in campus Marxist babble, um, an argument for barbarianism. She's basically arguing that, that looting and pillaging is fun, that it is morally justified because one tribe was treated poorly by another tribe a long time ago, and therefore they are entitled to payback. And she gussies it up with all sorts of, you know, ridiculous terminology about the nature of property and, and 
tries to claim that property is a white male, you know, European American concept, which is of course nonsense. Nonsense. You know, there's, there's stuff about private property in the Quran. You know, the Chi ancient Chinese had notions of private property. I doubt there are very many tribes in Africa that ever didn't have some notion of personal or private property. Um, sure, they had notions of communal property, like, you know, like Vikings and everybody else did. But like the idea that this is a purely white racist idea is just garbage. And, you know, shame on people for taking it seriously and not being willing to simply call it what it is, which is evil. Any permission structure you provide that gives one group of people license to commit violence on another group of people who have done nothing wrong is evil. And that's all it is. But that evil, the temptation of that evil lurks inside all of us. And it goes back forever, which is a good reason for me to talk to you about Ancestry.com. Uh, and we're very excited to have Ancestry.com as a new advertiser. Um, you know, we're coming up, we, we just passed the anniversary of World War II. It's been more than 75 years since many courageous soldiers, maybe even your grandfather, left home to fight for the highest possible purpose. Explore Ancestry.com's new collection of untold stories from World War II, then find and honor the veterans in your family who served. You may be familiar with the major events and battles of World War II, but there are so many more stories to uncover. The skill and bravery of the Tuskegee Airmen and all, all African-American squad of fighter pilots. The incredible women who trained to become pilots and mechanics. The Japanese-American battalion that became one of America's most decorated units despite discrimination against Japanese-Americans at the time. In honor of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, Ancestry has just released a U.S. draft card collection from World War II with over 36 million draft cards completed by fighting age men in the United States across the country during that time, whether they ended up serving or not. That's actually pretty cool if you could find like your grandfather or your great-grandfather's draft card. There's a great chance that you could find your relatives in this collection, and it can help you learn more about what their lives were like. Uncover your ancestors' personal details and in Ancestry's World War II draft card collection, which shows details like home addresses, physical descriptions, and more. Find and honor your ancestors who served in World War II. Get a new take on your ancestors' World War II experience. Find the veterans in your family who rose to the occasion when the world needed them most. Discover your untold stories and more. Just go to the URL ancestry.com slash remnant. Not dingo, remnant ancestry.com slash remnant to start discovering your story today that's ancestry.com slash remnant uh we thank ancestry uh for sponsoring today's episode of the remnant and i apologize to them for my poor reading of this copy um so it'd be actually great to get them to come back if you guys actually signed up um and used our promo code uh which is remnant Ancestry.com remnant. In fact, it'd be great if you could go to all of our advertisers and do that. Um, all right, and since World War II just came up and I realize now that a better segue would have been earlier when I was talking about the number of people who fought in combat in World War II, but such is life, live and learn. Um, I suppose I should take just a minute or two to talk about this Atlantic piece about Donald Trump. Um, my own position, which I expressed on Twitter last night, and I wrote about in the G file today, is that I find the story utterly believable. Um, and I find it believable in part because I don't think Jeffrey Goldberg, whatever you think of Jeffrey Goldberg, you know, and I had my disagreements with him about, you know, Kevin Williamson and all that. There's no way he would run a story that he didn't think he had gotten right and true. Um, and so, as I pointed out in the G file, you know, I find it believable. That doesn't necessarily, I believe all of it. It is entirely possible that um, his anonymous sources got some part of it wrong, that there's some hearsay involved, that there's some agenda involved in the people who are doing this. I am assuming that at least one of them is, is, is John Kelly, um, which should in and of itself be a damning thing of Donald Trump. 
and, and if you want of John Kelly too, I have no major brief for John Kelly, but um, the fact that, that Donald Trump hires these people, uses them up and leaves them with the desire to, to tell stories like this tells you something about Donald Trump, whether or not it makes John Kelly an honorable player in all this. And again, I don't know for a fact that John Kelly is a source and it just, it reads that way. Um, I think it's believable because an AP reporter went to his Pentagon sources and says he confirmed all of it. But moreover, I think it's believable because it comports with the Donald Trump that we know. Um, and, uh, you know, I find the people, you know, one of the things I find really frustrating about the instantaneous go to your corners stuff about this is that, um, the people who are very, 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 very mad at the Atlantic about this story immediately, um, like the lawyer who doesn't have the facts on his side, um, arguing about the law, they immediately go to the process. This is bad journalism to have anonymous sources and they're right. It, 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 I don't like the idea of just using a collection of anonymous sources. Um, someone should have gone on the record. Um, but that is not a direct rebuttal of the accusation. It is a way, it's sort of like saying, it's sort of like the guilty criminal who says, I wasn't read my rights. It's a perfectly legitimate argument to make, but it is not a declaration of innocence. Um, it's sort of like the, <laughs> like in 2016, all the Clinton defenders who say there's no smoking gun um, about the stuff that she did with the server. And I always like to point out that, well, first of all, there was a smoking gun in the server. Um, um, it was just sitting there all smoky like, but second of all, um, people who immediately say when accused of wrongdoing, you have no smoking gun or you can't prove that tend to be having, <laughs> giving away a big chunk of the store. Now, the correct answer to those accusations of your innocence is I'm innocent. I didn't do it. What are you talking about? It's not try and prove it, or you have no smoking gun. That's the kind of thing that really clever serial killers say. Um, anyway, this immediate rush to say, oh, it's bad ethics or it's bad form or that we shouldn't give it any credit because it's, it's off the, you know, it's, it's anonymous sourcing and all that. They're legalistic arguments. They are not without merit, but um, they're also not arguments in defense of Donald Trump's character, you know, and which is a point that John Bolton, who has some, has some damaging testimony about this because he does not recall these facts the way Jeff Goldberg, no relation, puts them forward. Um, but he also says, I haven't heard anybody stand up with firsthand knowledge about the guy and say, that's not the Donald Trump I know, because that is the Donald Trump we know. And if you, if it, it's one thing for you to say, you don't believe it or that you want to give, you don't want to give credence to uh, an anonymously sourced story. That's fine. It's another thing to say you don't find it believable, that you can't imagine Donald Trump saying these kinds of things. The guy who said avoiding the clap in the 70s was his personal Vietnam. Um, the guy who called John McCain a loser because he um, got captured. Um, the guy who made fun of the Gold Star, you know, who kept attacking the Gold Star parents during the campaign. The guy who, at least according to Michael Cohen, and again, all those caveats apply, um, said that he thought, you know, that Trump had often said going to Vietnam was for losers. Um, yeah, you know, I, I personally have this theory that Donald Trump, because he doesn't read, um, and he's obsessed with mobster stuff and loves mob stuff and has mob ties, to be honest, um, that he, at least according to some people, he got a lot of this from his dad, who was very much against military service. And we know that Donald Trump himself was against his son serving in the military. Um, but I also have this theory that he got, he got some of this from The Godfather. You know, there was that great bit in The Godfather where M Michael signs up for the Marines in World War II and Sonny is like, what are you, an idiot? Why would you fight for people who aren't blood? Um, and I might even call him a sucker. 
right? And they and I think they have a flashback thing about that in Godfather 2. I can't remember because I've watched the Godfather, Godfather 2, and that special merged version so many times that I can't always remember which is in which one. But the but the scenes are there about how, you know, military service is for suckers, which I think that probably captures a big chunk of what Donald Trump believes. Um, how much he'd be willing to fight and sacrifice for his family. I think that's an open question, but certainly he likes putting his family up front and out there and all the rest. But there's nothing in Donald Trump's history that leads me to think that he can understand and admire the decision to actually sign up and make sacrifices for your country. He's got that sort of cartoonish understanding of these things. Um, which is one of the reasons why he has no problem sort of celebrating, you know, a war criminal. But anyway, uh, what's depressing about all this, and I think Jay Nordlinger made this point, is that at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter. At least for a lot of these people, there could be tapes of him saying these things, and it still wouldn't move them. Um, and if it wouldn't move you because you still think Democrats are worse and all the rest, and that's bad, and they're bad, and that's fine. You can make that argument. But I don't think it would necessarily move a lot of people to thinking that Donald Trump was a man of bad character, which is just amazing. I mean, there, if, if there hadn't been the Access Hollywood tape and people just simply made those accusations anonymously about him, um, you would have had the same dynamic, right? But we didn't. We actually had the tape. And, you know, people like Steve Bannon, you know, they consider it one of their badges of glory that they stuck by him after that tape came out. My hunch is that all of the usual suspects, or at least most of them, would stick by Trump if a tape came out where he'd called, you know, Marines who died at the, you know, in World War I suckers and losers and all of that. Because we've gotten, these people have got a warped idea of manhood now because they've bent it to Donald Trump. And it's, I find it very, really sad. And so anyway, I think, I think, as I said, you know, last night, I don't think, I don't think Goldberg should have run the um, piece as it is. Um, there may be chicanery involved where they are trying to get, you know, the, the sources for this thing might, might be trying to bait Trump out into the open with more and more denials. And then they come out with proof or personal testimony or whatever. That might be part of the game. And, you know, maybe shame on Jeff Goldberg for being, part of that kind of thing, but I don't know that that's true. Um, I, you know, again, I have my disagreements with, with Jeff. I don't think he made the right decision with Kevin Williamson. Um, I think he let himself get bullied, but I think at the end of the day, Jeff Goldberg is basically an honorable dude and he certainly wouldn't risk his reputation and the reputation of his magazine over this thing. Um, and I am sure that whether it was John Kelly or people around Kelly or Mattis or people around Mattis, the, the people who told him this stuff believed it to be true and believe what they heard is true. Um, but it just, it doesn't matter very much. And I think that's a shame that it doesn't matter, but we are so far down the road, um, from these kinds of things mattering, you know, if character mattered, Donald Trump never would have done better than George Pataki in the primaries. It's his party now. He owns it. People have created all the rationalizations they need to circle the wagons around him. And, um, and as I was saying before, I can actually respect some of the rationalizations. Um, I would just have more respect for the people making them if they would make them in public um, rather than doing the usual, you know, no one loves the military more than Donald Trump and under comrade Trump will have the greatest wheat harvests we've ever seen. Um, that stuff is what I find pathetic. And, um, so sorry to end on a down note, but I guess that's where I'm going to leave it. And, uh, so next week we're going to get back to a more normal schedule. I'm going to try to do, you know, fewer and fewer Trumpy things, um, or political, you know, straight political thing, pundity things, um, on the remnant. Um, we have to do some of it, but they're just, I think people are overdosing on all that stuff. And if, and if you want daily sort of what did Trump do now stuff, there are other podcasts. 
some of them, you know, good. I mean, I listen to Charlie Sykes almost every day. I like his podcast. Congrats on his numbers. But I don't want to do, you know, day in, day out installments about Trump stuff. And um, I just find it exhausting. And so I really like the Ken Pollock episode that we did on United Arab Emirates and Israel and all that. I find that stuff interesting. I think people will like the socialism episode. Um, we've got uh, my friends Ron Bailey and Marion Tupi coming on at some point and Andy Ferguson too. Um, and also, uh, John Dickerson's in the works. So, uh, stay tuned, please, uh, give us some nice reviews. If you can, please tell your friends about the remnant, about the dispatch. Um, if you can subscribe to the dispatch, that would be great. Um, you know, if everybody who listened to this podcast subscribed, we could do some amazing things, um, with the increased bandwidth that would come from that. And, um, oh, and Congratulations. Uh, I don't, you know, everyone's getting this wrong when they're talking about how, you know, these countdowns were 61 days to election day. Election day started today. Um, people are voting as of today, which I think is wildly effed up, but it is what it is. And, um, uh, and so, you know, election day is going to be 60 days long and, and then the counting hopefully will be a little less long. So cheer up for the worst is yet to come. Anyway, I'll see you next time. So anyway, uh, sorry, I just got a text from Steve asking if I'm doing Brett Bear's podcast. And so this is a real event. Um, I need to respond to this. Uh, hold on one second. I don't think so. Did they say I was? Um, anyway, so depending on what Steve writes back, um, I may have to jump off this to do a podcast with for Brett Bear. Um, hold on. I'm seeing those little flashing. Huh. Hold on one second. He says, I'm CC'd on the email to him. I know this is exactly what all of you people want to hear. Um, um, well, he'll let me know. Let me know. Can do. See, this is, this is, this gives you a real taste of the incredible glamour an excitement of high stakes political journalism. Um, this is really what a big chunk of my life is, is me forgetting that I'm supposed to be on a podcast or Steve being wrong about me supposedly be on a podcast. Um, yeah. Okay. So I just got the text from Steve, you know, the, uh, Brett's podcast producer is also named Jonah and Steve must be drunk and got confused. And he thought I had been CC'd on an email anyway. Um,